Hello and welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast, episode 15, which I've given the title Losing My Religion. I'm really excited about the stuff I'm going to be sharing with you in this episode because it's stuff that's been really helpful to me on my own spiritual journey and it's it's stuff that has helped me to make sense of a few things, especially when faith itself hasn't made much sense. So let me talk about R.E.M. to begin with. Back in 1991, the band R.E.M. released a song called Losing My Religion. The title of the song is actually taken from some slang that refers to losing one's temper or being at the end of one's rope. And obviously, it has a literal meaning too: the idea of losing one's religion. So the song itself is about unrequited love and obsession. And that's quite fitting too, because some of that... Uh, fits with what I want to talk about here because religion is often about both of these things for the most part it's more like a love affair than it is like a rational set of beliefs and maybe losing your religion is about dealing with this fact I want to talk about this very simple experience that seems also to me to be fairly universal it's it's an experience that so many of my friends have had and it's an experience that I've had too And of course, there would be as many ways to relate this experience as there are people who have gone through it. But I'm going to say it really simply. There comes a time for most thinking people who have been brought up in a particular faith or religious tradition when they are confronted with the failures or at least the seeming failures of that tradition. And in that confrontation, they are faced with a decision. Do they stay? Or do they go? Or to put it differently, do they opt to let go of it, to lose their religion? Or do they stick around to work through it and figure it out? The decision, it turns out, is far more complicated than it first appears. But this very simple formulation is pretty much how it occurs to the individual, at least at first. I'm almost certain that most of you out there who listen to this podcast have gone through something like this, although people are so diverse and their experiences are going to differ. But my own experience was that I found myself at one point, uh, this was quite a while back, mind you, and I was struck by more than a few problems with the religious tradition I had grown up in. To be clear, it wasn't a unified experience. It wasn't as, as if I could look at my tradition and say it was all bad or all good. And I think that's actually what made it so tricky. I had my family and a number of really amazing friends who were and remain amazing at presenting a profoundly welcoming and non-fundamentalist version of the Christian faith. And then there was the picture of Christianity that I saw in the world around me and certain people I met in media representations and in different rather narrow theological perspectives. And what I saw there wasn't exactly what anyone sane would call appealing. There was moral hypocrisy, uh, but bigotry as well and hatred. And then there was really weak, shallow, stupid thinking. And at some point I thought that, that I was done with Christianity altogether because it was the beast in a way, and I, I hadn't figured out how to love it. I hope you enjoyed that fairy tale reference. I suppose it was a bit like I'd been taught a, a family recipe, and I'd been going along with the recipe, making that specific meal in this one very particular way, and then I got to a point where this meal that I was eating just didn't taste very good anymore. It, it's not that it always tasted bad. At one point, I thought it was lovely and 
and true. And then I guess I grew up and my tastes changed and I started to appreciate the value of nuances of flavor. And this all happened because of reasons that aren't always that very that easy to pinpoint. So I got to a place of thinking I wanted to give up the whole thing. thing. I wanted to stop making that specific meal in that specific way and instead start to look for other kinds of food, other recipes, other ways of making things, other flavors and experiences. I know the, the food analogy has its limits. Religion is not just about taste, no matter how much it is made out to be about taste by some people. But I think the general idea is still fitting. You're in this world where this thing, this religion or faith tradition, seems to work beautifully. And then something happens, or a few things happen, or you see a few things and learn a few things, and then it just doesn't work at all. And you think, no problem, it's time to move on. Or is it? Maybe this isn't as simple as staying or going. Maybe even the idea of losing your religion isn't as simple as the idea of losing your keys or losing your way. And it's at this point that I'm going to get a bit philosophical. So I want to talk about three ideas offered by three different philosophers, and then I want to come back to this simple experience and this seemingly simple moment of choice. And I want to point out through all of this that it's not that simple. My hope is that some of what I say will be helpful to you because I think... uh, it is important to grapple with this issue, especially those of you um, who spend more time wrestling with Christianity than sitting peacefully and drinking tea with it. The three ideas I want to discuss are from three philosophers. Hegel is the first, Derrida is the second, and Zizek is the third. And I'm not trying to scare anyone by referring to these philosophers, by the way. I get that they're kind of scary when you first approach them. I just want to refer to these guys because I think they have something useful to offer that that can contribute to this topic. Although they're probably not trying to say anything specific about this topic, I'm probably just ventriloquizing. I'm using their insights to build into my own, and I I know I'll probably butcher their ideas a little bit as I talk about them here, uh, because... That's kind of inevitable when you're offering verbal explanations. You're going to end up reducing things a little bit. In any case, my point is ultimately much more existential than it is technical, which is why I'm taking the route that I'm taking. In the case of Hegel, I want to look at logic. In the case of Derrida, I want to look at language. And then in Zizek's case, I want to look at experience. Logic, language, experience. They're all tied together, of course, but we're going to look at them separately and you'll see towards the end, hopefully, how they all fit together. By the way, I know some of you are going to wonder why I'm taking such a long route, a roundabout way to talk about this uh, subject, and with any luck, that'll also be clear. The gist of it is that I'm looking for a way to articulate my own experience that will be helpful to you as you navigate your own experience. That's really all all I want to do. I want to help. So first, three philosophers, and then what all of this means for losing your religion, or mine for that matter. So here we go. First, Hegel. I'm sure you've heard of Hegel's dialectic. And if you haven't heard of it, it's really just amazingly brilliant. But it's also fairly easy to misunderstand. So let me start off by offering the misunderstood version of Hegel's dialectic, and then I'm going to offer a correction. 
Most of us have heard of Hegel's dialectic being formulated in the following way. You start with a thesis, which is then met with an antithesis, and finally, what happens is a synthesis. And the synthesis is the thing that comes out at the end of a process of this meeting between thesis and antithesis. This way of understanding Hegel's dialectic is not totally terrible, but it doesn't do a great job at highlighting the significance of the dialectic, what it really means. It feels a bit more like common sense than it is like an insight. Um, so, because of course you knew that, that's how life works. There's a thesis, there's an antithesis, and then there's a synthesis. So a better way to see the dialectic is as follows. It actually begins with the antithesis. Rather counterintuitively, we begin with the negative, not the positive. This negative, this antithesis, is understood as opposing a positive thing that is somewhat ill-defined, uncertain, undetermined, or fuzzy. This fuzzy thing, this positive fuzzy thing, the thing that's being opposed by the negative thing, is the thesis. However, since it's not very well defined, the, th the thesis is actually also fairly difficult to critique. But because the antithesis tends to be quite brutal and demanding, the nature of the thesis starts to become clearer and clearer through the light of the antithesis. In a way, it seems that the antithesis sharpens the focus on the thesis. So if you're keeping up, and I hope you are, you have the antithesis, and this is what tells you what the thesis is. You have the opposition, and in the face of the opposition, you start to have an idea of what it is that is being opposed. What happens next is this. The thesis then fights back against the antithesis, but, and this is really important, it does so on the terms of the antithesis. So many arguments work in this way. One person offers an argument and her opponent then offers a counter-argument that deals with the things dealt with in the original argument in the same way that the original argument dealt with things. Because remember, the thesis is only becoming clearer as, the, as a thesis, at least, because of the antithesis. I'm going to say that again. The thesis is actually only becoming clearer because of the antithesis. The result is that the thesis eventually becomes a point or locus or position within the boundaries delineated by the antithesis. And this is actually the synthesis. The synthesis is where the th when the thesis has been swallowed up by the antithesis. And in the process, it's been reconfigured in the terms of the antithesis. I hope that makes sense. So uh, an example is maybe helpful to clarify. So we, we have the case of how enlightenment reason fights against religion. So enlightenment, you start there with the antithesis, and it's fighting against religion. In a way, you have enlightenment losing its religion. Religion is actually primarily a practical a concern of rituals, communities, prayers, and so on. But as enlightenment reason fights against religion, which is actually a fairly fuzzy thing, religious folks start to fight back. And they do so in the terms of enlightenment reason. And in the end, 
the religion is no longer what it was, rather it becomes a product of enlightenment reason. That is the synthesis. So a great example of this would be the Protestant Reformation. Protestantism in many ways was a mirror image of the secularization of society. And in saying that, I realize that's a really massive topic on its own, but it's worth paying attention to. What seemed at first to be antithetical to secularism may have actually been its product. Maybe a simpler example is that of the new atheists. The new atheists are an example of people who lost religion, but in the process came up with a view of religion that doesn't exist except in really weird fringe circles. So for instance, Islam in the mind of the new atheist becomes entirely configured in terms of fundamentalism, even though Muslim fundamentalists are really a very, very small minority group. In fact, there's an argument to be made that fundamentalists are in some sense the product of the secularists or the secularism that opposes religion. Fundamentalism is not the opposite of secularity, but its mirror image. It is its double in a way. So it's a weird thought maybe, but this is what happens. You have this thing that isn't very clear, but there's something in it that isn't palatable to some people. So those people oppose it and they they oppose it and then they keep on opposing it. And finally, the thing that's being opposed becomes something else. It becomes a coordinate within this system of oppositions, which raises this question. What if the thesis, the religion you're losing, is a construct created in the face of your own negativity and opposition? I get it. It's complicated. There's a lot more to say. And even my example of the new atheists is potentially problematic, which I will hint at a little bit later. So this is why I want to look at Derrida, but hopefully a little bit without his jargon. In a way, Derrida is one... His idea, the one I'm going to deal with, is very close to Hegel's dialectic, but I'm referring to him to refer not just to logic, but to language itself, which is a little bit less deterministic than Hegel's dialectical machinery. Derrida talks about language a whole lot, and one of his insights is that language is a kind of contaminating process, which means that every sign or word is somehow always dependent on other signs. If you look at the terms good or bad, for instance, it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to conceive of the one without the other. Good is always, in a sense, contaminated by what is bad, and bad is always contaminated by the meaning of good. You need the one word, the meaning of it at least, to see the meaning of the other. And we may not like this idea, and it does definitely present more than a few metaphysical problems. But the point is really profound. We don't get to have language be totally split up. Every word is contaminated by and affected by other words. Every idea is dependent on other ideas. To tie Hegel's idea to Derrida's idea, what we have is this. When you're fighting against something like your religion, the fight will do many things. But one thing is always inevitable. The opposition of the religion is always going to change the way you see the religion. And sometimes it'll even distort the way you see the religion. After all, 
You've gone through this whole process of changing the coordinates of your understanding. You're on the outside looking in, but in the process, you're not necessarily the th seeing the thing very clearly. The unfortunate result of this process is that, psychologically speaking, you will feel now like you see the thing clearer than ever. And it's, it's quite ironic in a way because you, you're looking at the thing from a distance, from a distorted perspective, but you will be more convinced that you are right about it. Um, but you see what's happened. The antithesis has actually clarified the thesis, but it has done so on its own terms. The thesis was never the thing that you ended up rejecting. It, it was more vague than that. It was uncertain. And what you've added is maybe a little bit too much clarity. What Derrida's perspective then adds to this, just maybe, is that we are far more dependent on what we reject than we would like to see or think that we are. Maybe the antithesis is a parasite. It needs the thesis, no matter how clear or fuzzy, it needs the thesis in order to be able to exist as it does. Okay, so I've looked at Hegel and Derrida, so I want to move on to Zizek. Zizek has this really crazy claim, and it's so great and provocative, and I don't necessarily agree with the whole thing, but I, I think it's got some in interesting conceptual uh, possibilities. His claim is that only a Christian can be a true atheist. And what he means by this, more or less, is that Christians alone can go through an experience of losing God. In Zizek's work, God is equated with a kind of system of law and custom which is known as the big other and in the process this is how christians get rid of a transcendent guarantor of meaning or purpose i don't want to go into a very detailed exposition of zizek here but i think it's fascinating for this one reason for for zizek even being an atheist is dependent upon the christian experience which is in turn dependent upon the loss of the Christian experience. You can't really be a successful atheist for Zizek without in some sense being a parasite on Christianity. Zizek has in mind a non-fundamentalist atheist. The new atheists, which I mentioned just, just now, for him, aren't proper atheists because they're, they're too certain about their guarantors of meaning. They're, they place too much weight on science, for instance. But Zizek also hints at a really profound thing. The true atheist for him is one who is permanently indebted to Christianity. He cannot be free of Christianity any more than a person can be free of his own history. So we may want to lose Christianity or whatever religious tradition we're in or let it go. But it's part of the very way that our collective consciousness or even our unconscious has been structured. It's part of our whole horizon of understanding. One classic example of this is, is Christian morality, the primacy of love as, as a, an ethical position. Is it predominantly in the West? It's a Christian idea. Um, so you can reject Christianity all you like, but in a way, the, the ground that you still operate on is still profoundly Christian. If you were a Christian and now you're an atheist, in a way, then you're still a Christian by virtue of the fact that your atheism is dependent on your heritage or your existential experience of the loss of faith. 
But Zizek's point is even stronger than this. Those atheists who have not undergone the loss of the big other or the loss of God cannot count themselves as true atheists. Those atheists are too dependent on the big other. And I know me just recounting what Zizek says here is really controversial. I, I know there are problems with it. But I think there is something profound that he's saying that gets to what it means to be a Christian, especially grappling with the loss of faith. And I think it means two things. In fact, all of this culminates in what I want to suggest here. The first is that you're never really free from the religion you reject outright. It's part of your blood, your consciousness, the way you navigate the world. The second thing is related to the first, and it is this. You cannot really transcend anything until you are reconciled to it. I get these insights from the New Testament from a guy who is probably quite familiar to you. Jesus said some pretty way out stuff, and one of them was that we need to turn the other cheek when someone strikes us. Now, I know this has been read in many ways, and it's often been used as a kind of legitimation for for letting people be abused or becoming a doormat. But I don't think this is what Jesus meant, and, and people who are being abused should always find ways to not be abused. Being abused is not the Christian thing to do. Being a doormat is fundamentally un-Jesus-like. In fact, much of Jesus' philosophy is a stance against abuse, uh, which is, weirdly enough, why in some cases he did nothing. He showed abused abusive systems to be abusive precisely by not retaliating. Uh, but that's not a rule, that's just a principle that he he adopted in certain uh, places. This was a stance of strength and definitely not doormatishness. Contextually then, Jesus was talking about the way that resistance feels further retaliation. He was saying, don't retaliate if that conveys the wrong message. Because here's the thing, in mindless retaliation, we actually become bound to what we're fighting. When we choose not to fight, though, when we choose to face the enemy and look them in the eye, again, that stance of strength, that is when we are no longer enslaved to the enemy. When we respond in a way that does not mirror the enemy's actions or responses, that is when we gain our independence. And this, as you can see, is really paradoxical. We're enslaved to what we reject, but we're free from what we accept. We are free from what we have been reconciled with, is, is another way of saying it. Which is why, at a point in my own life, I decided to accept the Christianity that I was at one time really not happy with. It didn't mean accepting everything in, in that particular brand of Christianity. I didn't have to take Genesis literally, for instance, and I didn't have to believe that God thinks that homosexuality is wrong. I accepted that nasty and hateful stuff is there in the tradition, and that it's probably a natural result of the fact that human beings are more verbose than God is, and that human beings are hateful without God needing to give them the go-ahead. I accepted that the bad stuff is there, and I also accepted that maybe I should take a closer look anyway. In, in a way, not being hateful towards it meant that I was freer to actually understand it 
on its own terms. I didn't have to let it be formulated in the terms of any kind of antithesis. There, there was tremendous freedom in this for me because I was reconciled with even what I found unable to accept. I accepted the unacceptable in a way. And it's only then that I was able to see clearly. And I'm not saying that I see things perfectly now, of course. I, I still have issues and I'm really human and I have blind spots like everyone else does. Even when I tell you all this stuff, my mind is double-checking what I'm saying and finding loopholes everywhere. But the point is this, the main point at least, you can only lose your religion when you've really found it. You lose your life and then you find it. You take up your cross, your death in a way, and you find something that looks a lot like resurrection, but without the zombies. It all works a little bit backwards in the way that you would expect. What I found was that what I rejected was largely the caricature of Christianity. It wasn't the flesh and bones version of it, but the thin ghost-like shell of it that I found unacceptable. Unfortunately today, I think it's the caricature of Christianity that still gets the most press, just like it's the empty vessel politicians who make the most noise, who everyone listens to the most. Uh, did anyone say Donald Trump? Empty vessels make the most noise, but the kind of Christianity that I ended up embracing was quiet and not really verbose, and it, it wasn't stupid or naive, and it was grounded and deep and even kind of endlessly entertaining. But the only way I could see that, the good stuff, was to stop looking at Christianity on the terms set up by an antithesis. That said, I know you all have your own history, and I'll bet that for some of you, you want to lose some of that history. Your journey is definitely your own, and I'm, I'm not going to judge, but I will make a suggestion which you can maybe think about. And it's rooted in a little philosophy and quite a bit of experience. My suggestion is this. Be careful of what you vilify. Even in your own history, learn insofar as you can to love your enemy especially if your enemy just happens to be your past self. Because transcendence is only possible through accepting what we cannot accept. <laughs>